Have a Bible, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6 is where we're going to be together for a few moments today. Myrtle Grove, thank you so much for having me back, especially on Father's Day too. That's kind of cool. That's a privilege. Normally, you know, I speak lots of different times throughout the year in different churches, but almost always holidays are off limits. And I get that. Churches kind of do their own thing on holidays. So Pastor Josh, thank you so much for having me opening your pulpit on Father's Day. And hopefully this will be a little bit of a treat for you today to not have to preach and relax and enjoy your family. But um, man, I'm excited to be back with you. We loved the last time we were here. I've got the crew here with us again, and uh, we've had a great weekend in this area all weekend long. So excited to be back with you. Um, it is, we've just come off of the Southern Baptist Convention, and while there is no regularity in a given week or day for me and my job, there's a lot of regularity in the year. We go through these seasons of the year, and we just came through the biggest, most stressful one of all, and we're back into the normal stuff. And I gotta tell you, I am, the normal stuff for me is being in churches like this. And I love that. It's my favorite part of the job. So I'm quite excited to be here with you today. So today, Deuteronomy chapter 6 is where we're going to be. This is a passage of scripture known in the Hebrew Bible as the Shema. And the word Shema means hear and obey. It's like saying, listen to me. It's that kind of idea. So I'll explain as we go along. Deuteronomy chapter 6. And we'll pick up in verse number four. Listen to what the scripture has to say to us. Hear, O Israel. That's that idea. Shema. Listen to me and obey. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God. The Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. Verse six. These words which I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontals between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gate. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And uh, we are grateful, so very, very grateful that as we think about Father's Day today, that ultimately we have you as our great, mighty, wonderful, kind, compassionate, merciful, and loving Heavenly Father, that you care for us, that you love us, and Lord, in response, we love you back. We are so grateful, God, that we get to just simply be your children. And I pray today that you'd use this time to encourage our fathers in particular in this room, our parents even more broadly, and children as well, and the whole body of Christ. I pray that you'd use this time to make your people strong, to encourage, to challenge, to strengthen, to convict. Lord God, to do whatever in the lives of every individual person that's here this morning that needs to be done. Help, Lord, now as I open your word and preach from it to do those things, Lord, by your spirit and by your word that I can't do. Lord, stir hearts, strengthen hearts and souls, and Lord, may we as a people be the people you've called us to be. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. My friends, what if we're doing it wrong? And by it, doing it wrong, what I mean is quite literally all of it, the whole life. Hmm. Chances are nobody in this room has this idea in their head that they want to go through life and miss the mark of what God 
would have had them to do. I mean, I don't know anybody that would ever aspire to missing what God intended them to do. And yet, it is a very easy thing for us to do. We can exist and we can live and we can have big lives. We can accomplish much in the eyes of the world. We can have long histories and legacies and yet stand before the Lord one day and have missed what he put us here to do. And chances are, again, nobody in this room wants that to happen. And yet, if we're not careful, that is exactly what we will do if we're not vigilant to listen, to hear, and to obey what God has instructed us to do with our lives. If I were to ask a question, for example, of, hey, what's the most important thing you could do with your life? I would imagine in a room this size, you'd have lots of different kinds of answers to that question. Perhaps it might be work hard in school. Perhaps it might be work hard in your job. Some people would even think about the purpose of life as accomplishing power or money or fame or one of those types of things that the world would throw to us. I mean, watch what the world around us celebrates and esteems, for instance. Man, in this world, if you don't have money, you're not much. If you don't have fame or recognition or power, you're not much. Now, we're Christians. Surely we wouldn't think that way, but there again, it's easy for us to do. Here in this passage of Scripture, Moses gives the command of all commands. In other words, if you want to answer the question, hey, what's the most important thing you can do with your life from the Word of God, from God's perspective, then this passage right here is the command. Again, the word Shema, listen and obey. Now, when you tell somebody to listen to you for a second, you could really mean one of two things. Here's the first one. Hey, listen to me. And in this sense, all you really mean is, I want to give you some information. I want to tell you something, right? I want to update you on something. Another way you can use that word listen, when you say listen to me, is when the way a parent does it to a child. You know how the little kid's just bouncing off the wall, has been told four or five times already to stop doing that? And finally, mama comes along and grabs him by the face like this and says, boy, listen to me. That's the second way you could use this term. And that is how Moses is using it here. God is saying to his people, listen to me and obey. Now, here's what's interesting about this passage, and then I'm going to show you a couple things in it. What's interesting in this passage is this is coming at the end now of the five books of Moses. You remember the books of Moses, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It's called the Torah for the Old Testament people, Hebrews, right? It's called the Torah or the books of Moses. It tells the story of how God created a world and raised up a people, Abraham's seed, how he gave them the promise of the promised land and how he was going to make them a great nation. And for many years now, many decades, the people have bounced up and down in their obedience and disobedience and God took them through the desert for 40 years and they're just about to go into the promised land. In Exodus chapter 20, God gave them the Ten Commandments. You remember those? 
You shall not steal, shall not commit adultery, you shall not covet, you shall have no other gods before me and such. Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 5, God has once again reminded them of those Ten Commandments. And so, two places in those first five books, the Ten Commandments are given. Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5. Here's why he gave it to them again. God had told them what he expected of them, and they're about to go into the promised land. And before they go into the promised land, he reminds them of what he wants them to do. Fast forward for a minute. Matthew chapter 22. Our Lord Jesus is asked by the scribes and the, the Pharisees, what's the greatest commandment in the law? And what they're really asking is, of the Ten Commandments, what's the most important one? And it's a trap. Because if he picks out one of them, while it might sound great to say, this one here is the most important for that command... He's just implicitly will have said that these other nine don't matter. And now they'd have him in a trap and they could go after him and destroy him. What's interesting when he's asked that question, what's the greatest commandment in the law, is that Jesus does in fact go back to the portion of scripture where the ten commandments are given, but he doesn't pick one of the ten. Instead, he points to this passage, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and instead of strength, Jesus says, mind. So in other words, here's what I want you to see before we jump in. When Jesus is asked what's the most important commandment in all the Bible, Jesus points to this one right here. You want to know what the purpose of your life is? Love God. And my friends, if you do that, whatever else may have happened, you have done what God put you here to do. All right. So let me show you this text. And I'm going to tie it into Father's Day for a moment because there's some instructions for us as fathers to our children here today. And that's why we picked this passage of Scripture. Three commands in this passage of Scripture I want to show you. Number one, think rightly about God. Number one, think rightly about God. Here's what I mean by that. It matters to God how we think about Him, how we talk about Him, how we describe Him. It matters to our God greatly that we do all of that rightly. Now, here's another way I could have made this point, another way I could have said this. One way I could have said it was, Theology matters to God. Now, what is theology? Theology is when we think about God and we talk about God and we describe God. We have these things called doctrines. We, for example, think that God is omniscient. He knows everything. He knows everything there is to know about the past, the present, and the future. We say that God is omnipotent. He has enough power to do quite literally anything that's logically possible to do. He can hold the whole universe in his hands, right? We think that God is self-existent. He doesn't depend on something outside of himself for his own existence. He just exists. These are doctrines. This is theology. We think of Jesus this way. Fully God and fully man. Real, God, real divinity and real humanity. humanity. We believe in something called the Trinity, for example, right? That there's one God, one in essence, 
Three persons in the Godhead. These are all examples of theology. And one way I could make the point to you this morning is by simply saying theology matters to God. And so from the text, I want to show it to you this way. God wants us to think of him when we do think of him rightly. And while this may sound very academic and exactly the kind of thing you'd expect the seminary president to say to you, I'm going to show you in just a minute where our culture is challenging you every single day to think wrongly about God. So just bear with me for a second. Let me show it to you in the text. My point number one, command number one is think rightly about God. Look at what it says in verse four. Hear, O Israel. Again, remember what he means by that is now listen to me and obey this. Hear, O Israel. And what you'd expect him saying that is now some command to come, and indeed it will in verse 5. But before that command comes in verse 5, notice what the next thing he says. Hear, O Israel, listen and obey. And now watch what he says. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. God says, listen to me and obey, and then he makes a theological point. Listen to me and obey, and what he does here is he describes himself for the people of Israel. Now, why would he do that? Well, you remember what they've been doing, right? They were in Egypt for a very long time. Do you remember this? I mean, this is book of Genesis. You know, there was a famine. And through Joseph, they go down into Egypt. They say for hundreds of years. And Moses, God hears the cries of his people in the early chapters of Exodus. And he brings up Moses who takes them out of Israel. There is an Exodus, an exiting from Egypt out into the wilderness. And for 40 years, they wandered around in the, in the, in the wilderness. Here's why God is saying, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. When they were in Egypt, do you know what people believed about gods? They believed in something called polytheism. That's a big fancy word. Poly means many. Theism means God. So here's what that means. They believed in not one God. They believed in many gods. There was the sun God and the moon God and the fertility God and the God of rain and the God of afterlife and the God of this life and a God of harvest. I mean, my goodness gracious, folks, for every single facet of human life, the Egyptians believed that there was an individual God over that thing. Now do you see this? They've spent hundreds of years in a culture and in a context that said all the wrong things about God. Not surprisingly, therefore, God will clarify for them what he is not and what he is. I am not, God is saying here, I am not to be confused with those pagan gods of Egypt. And guess where they're going? They're going into the land of Canaan. And you know what they believed? They believed roughly a different set of gods, but roughly the same kind of system. They too were polytheistic. A sun god, and a moon god, and a river god, and an ocean god, and a sea god, and a harvest god, and a god of life, and a god of death, and a god for this, and a god for that. And no matter where they'd come from and where they were going, listen to me, every single thing that they would experience in the world said all the wrong stuff about God. So now God says to me, listen to me and obey. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. In other words, don't you dare confuse me with the pagan gods of Egypt or Canaan. 
Because I am not those gods. In short, I'd say it to you this way. Do not let the culture define your God for you. Think about God rightly. Now, we are in Florida in 2023. There's no Egyptian gods around here. There's no Canaanite gods around here. Yeah, but there is a lost pagan world around us around here, is there not? And this is the culture that will say, well, the God that I worship is like this. Somebody else might say, and the God that I might worship is like that. They don't like something about the God that you and I believe in, so they lop it off. And people treat God in our culture like some automobile that you can order straight from the factory, custom fit to your preferences. And if you don't like some concept about God, you just lop it off. No problem. Don't affirm that. Just insist that God's not that way. We now have a culture where people say ridiculous things like, well, my truth is this and your truth is this. My dear friends, let me just tell you something. It is either true or false. This business of my truth and your truth, my friends, there's just truth. And we have to be those people that are ironclad, standing on the Word of God, saying, no, this is who God is. God is not an automobile that you custom build for your preferences. God is just God. And you know what God is saying to the people of Israel right here? Don't confuse me with the gods of your culture that people say are real, because they're not. The Lord, our God, the Lord's one. Don't confuse me with something else. And so I'd say it to you this way. Command number one here in this text. Think of God rightly. My dear friends, listen to me. Can I speak to the men in particular? Fellas, I'm not here today to do anything other than encourage and inspire. I'm not here to bonk anybody on the head and make somebody feel guilty for a failure in this way or a failure in that way. But can I just say it to us this way? This is why discipleship matters a lot. This is why you have to be, men especially, I'm speaking to you, why you have to be students of the Word of God. Is the Bible for you just something that you crack open once a week when the preacher says, turn to this passage? Or is the Bible for you bread and life? Do you actually utilize it for what it is? A, a, a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Do you see it for what it is? The scriptures revealing to us who God is. This is how we understand God, not the influences of our culture. And let me just tell you, we are in a cultural moment right here. I'm not trying to raise a sore subject, but folks, we're in a moment where we better put our seatbelt on because this culture is going to pressure us, pinch us cut us and do everything it possibly can to get us to capitulate to the ideals of the moment. It will cost you something potentially to walk with Jesus. If you want to stand where he stood and affirm what he affirmed, then my friend, it may cost you something. And you and I are just going to have to decide deep down in our bones and be resolved in it that we will be the people that he called us to be. We will think rightly about our God. We will speak rightly about our God because our God demands it of us. Listen to me and obey.
the Lord our God, the Lord's one. Don't confuse me with the gods of this culture. So I say to you, number one, think rightly about God. Command number two, love God completely. Think rightly about God. Number two, love God completely. Now, what do I mean by completely? Well, notice what verse five says. You shall love the Lord your God with your heart, with your soul, and with all your strength. Jesus will change that when he talks about it in Matthew chapter 22. Heart, soul, and mind. Now, the question here is, is what does he mean by these three parts? Is your heart and your soul two different things about you, two different kinds of components that make you up? Well, what does he mean by strength? Well, here, let me tell you, they say this to you. Here's what he does not mean. What he does not mean is compartmentalize, chop you up and just love him with this, this, and this, and then everything else is free to be yours, to, to do whatever with you want to. No, that's not what he means. By going through the parts like this, heart, soul, and strength, or as Jesus does, heart, soul, and mind, what both are signifying to us, what both are suggesting to us, listen to me, is that you and I are going to be the people, have to be the people, called to be the people that love God with everything that we are. Typically what we like to do, this is important because typically what we like to do is we like to compartmentalize. God, I will obey you here and I will obey you here. But this right here, that's mine. We like to make reservations on parts of our lives and say over those parts, these are mine, Lord. I give you everything else, but this right here is mine. And what God is saying to his people is, once again, listen to me and obey. Love me with all of your heart and all of your soul and with all of your strength. That idea of strength connotes for us. It suggests to us with every drop of vigor and muster that I can produce for him, I'm to throw it towards him in a hot-hearted pursuit and love for him. That's what I'm called to do. Friend, you can accomplish so much in life. You can be successful financially. You can be successful in terms of like job performance. You can sit in big, impressive seats. I, I happen to sit in a seat that, frankly, a lot of people of the 15 million Southern Baptists, 46,000 churches, I happen to sit in a seat that a lot of people would covet. And yet, if I accomplish all of those things, but I don't, love God, then I fail. Listen to what the scriptures actually say to us on this note. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, listen to this. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, meaning I can speak to you in normal human talk, or I have a supernatural spiritual gift of tongues, if I had those things, but I don't have love, he says, I would have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal, meaning this. I can have a great spiritual gift, but if I lack love, I'm actually an annoyance. I'm actually a problem. Listen to verse 2. Though I have the gift of prophecy. Man, I could be the prophecy here means preaching. I could be the best preacher 
not just in the SBC, but in the entire world. If I have the gift of prophecy and I understand all mysteries, meaning I'm just absolutely brilliant. I'm a great theological mind and I have all this knowledge and I have all kinds of faith, but that I don't have love. Listen to this. I am nothing. I'm a zero. I'm a zip. Verse three, listen to this. And though I bestow all of my goods to the poor, and though I give all my body to be burned, did you know it is possible for us to do great acts of compassion for people and still do it without a loving heart? Yes, because some people do all those great acts of compassion for reasons that are actually very selfish, self-promoting. He says, if I do all those things and I don't have love, listen to this, it profits me nothing. My friend, I asked you the question at the beginning. What if we're doing it wrong? What if you and I are going through life and accomplishing much, but we're going to stand before God one day and it will have all been for nothing. It will all been waste. Guaranteed path for that to be reality for you is for you to not love God. Did you know that the highest and the greatest purpose of your existence is to love God. This is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 22. Teacher, what's the greatest commandment in all the law? Meaning of everything God ever commanded, what's the greatest possible commandment there ever, ever is? And he points to this passage right here, Deuteronomy 6, and says, you shall love God. That's what I'm here for. And when you love him, love him with everything. There is no compartmentalization here. This is yours and this is yours. But God, this is mine. No. With all that I am, I love God. You know, I think this is the problem in our culture right now. Have you noticed? Have you heard? Are you aware of the fact that churches like this one are on the decline? I don't know if yours is, but across this nation, throughout the United States, churches like these are dwindling gradually. The, the ship sinks just a little bit more every single year. That on the whole, fewer and fewer people in our culture today identify as Christians of any kind at all, that more and more people in our culture identify as what we would call nuns, meaning they have none, none, nothing, nada, any religious perspectives at all, just nothing, nothing. They don't believe anything. That's rising and fewer, fewer people professing Christianity. How do you fix that? Is it found in some whiz-bang evangelism program? Well, we should be doing evangelism, but I suspect it doesn't lie in some latest, greatest program. Does it lie in having great technology? You've got, a, you've got great technology. I, I mean, I, I go to a lot of different churches. You've got a great, great technological crew here, right? Does it, does it lie in stuff like that? You know what I think is really missing? People don't see in us a love a stirring for something higher and greater than this world can ever offer. Our approach come Christmas when the store down the road says happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas, our approach is to boycott. Well, look, I, I, I'm not saying we don't do those types of things from time to time. I can, to be honest with you, there's a couple companies in this world right now that are doing some things that I say, well, I'm done then. I'm not doing that. 
But I'd say this to you. Wouldn't it be a stronger, greater witness? Wouldn't it open more eyes if in fact they saw in us a love for God and a worship that was so rich and so strong that it would open their eyes? You know how I came to faith? I got invited to church. I then got invited to a youth camp. On Thursday, I actually had the opportunity to speak on the very day, 28 years later, in the place where I came to faith at a youth camp. But you know what did it? I walked into a room. I thought Christians were the biggest dorks in the world. I wanted nothing to do with Christians. And I walked into the room and there was about 700 teenagers. And they started doing praise and worship. And that room lit up with worship for God. I had never in my life seen people love God like that. And it was so infectious. I saw it for what it was. There's something totally different here. It wasn't just that there were people loving God that way. There were teenagers loving God like that. And it got my attention and it opened my heart. And the gospel was given to me and I came to faith. God says to you and to me, think about me rightly. And number two, love me completely. My friend, are you a worshiper of God? Do you love God deeply? Let me give you one more thing from the text here and I'll wrap it up. Real quick, think about God rightly, love God completely, and thirdly and finally, make Him known. Make Him known. Think about Him rightly, love Him completely, and make Him known. Verse 6, these words which I command you today shall be on your heart. Now watch this, listen to me. This is why we're tying it into Father's Day right here. And here's our command, listen and obey. Daddy, listen and obey. Mommy, listen and obey. Verse 7. And you shall teach them diligently to your children. Whose job is it to disciple your children? Is it the youth pastors? Children's pastor? Is it the pastor? Look, they're part of the team. We might even say they're an essential part of the team. But actually, the Bible gives that responsibility, listen to me, to you, mom and dad. It is your job, most essentially, to disciple your children. And listen, here's the thing. This is why those earlier points have to be in place. You can't actually do that if you don't think rightly about God. And you won't do that if you don't love God completely. So if there's a lack of discipleship in your home, let's revisit those earlier points. It might be because we need to actually dig in deeper in the Word of God and become a disciple. And it may be that our, the affections of our heart need to change. Maybe we need to stop chasing a dollar. Maybe we need to stop chasing entertainment or leisure or just relaxing all the time. Maybe we need to take up. Look, my passion and my love should always be for the Lord Jesus himself. Because if I don't think rightly about him and I don't love him completely, I'm certainly not going to help my children do the same. But, hear me, per the word of God, the responsibility to make a disciple of your child is yours. First and foremost. So, Watch how he says to do it. You shall teach them diligently to your children. Now watch how he tells them to do it. You shall talk about them when you're sitting around in your house. 
Watch this. Notice here that it's, it seems to be in what we would think of as trivial and mundane, ordinary things that happen in our day-to-day lives. Just, you know, sitting around the house. Watch this. You shall, teach, you, you shall talk about them when you're sitting in your house. When you walk by the way. I mean, he doesn't even say a specific way. It's just when you're walking a pathway. In other words, you're sitting around your house. You're talking to your kids about the Lord. They're seeing in you when you're sitting around your house your love for God. When you're just walking by the way, you're going from point A to point B. There's a Christian way to go about point A to point B. And in the normal, mundane, ordinary things of just going about life from point A to point B, they should see Jesus in us. And we should be talking to them about it. Listen to this. When you lie down, you're just lounging at the house now. When you rise up, In the normal, mundane things of life, we should be making disciples. Here's why we're pointing this out to you. We tend to think that discipleship always takes place in the big, 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 big moments. But actually, God says it's in the little, seemingly mundane, trivial moments that you're actually making them a disciple, right? Uh, When I was pastoring a church, I remember there was this one couple. Their son had not turned out the way they wanted him to. He's 18 years old. He is not walking with the Lord. He is into all the wrong things. And I remember the father and the mother were sitting in my office, really torn up over this, kind of lamenting this. And the dad said these words to me. He said this, preacher, I don't know what happened. We brought him to church. And I turned, and I'm going to shock you when I said what I said in response. I turned, I looked at him. I said, that's the problem. Let me be clear. It's not a problem that you brought him to church. It is a problem that you thought that's where your job started and ended. My job is to bring them to church, dump them off, and let somebody else do it. That is the problem. Because it assumes that it is somebody else's job to make your kids love Jesus. Hey, Daddy, that's your job. Hey, Mama, that's your job. And it's your job to do it not in just the big fancy flashy moments like Sunday morning at 11 o'clock, make sure they're there. In fact, if that's the only thing you do, they'll probably resent it. Because they don't want to do that. That you've shown them no other reason on Monday through Saturday of why Jesus could matter to them. And now you're going to force God down their throat on a Sunday morning? Yeah, don't expect that to work. It's your job, and it's your job to do it when you're sitting around the house. When you're walking by the way, show them to love Jesus. Now there's more, a little more, verse 8. You shall bind them as a sign on your hands. They shall be as frontals between your eyes. You should put them on the doorpost of your house. Some of you have been to Israel, right? Raise your hand if you've ever been to Israel. You've seen when you're there. The devout Jews will take leather straps and wrap them so tight around their arms it'll cut the circulation off their arm. What are they doing? They are being literal about this command right here. You shall wrap them around, bind them as a sign on your hands. They literally have those words, those verses right there on those leather straps and they wrap them around and they think that in doing that they're obeying God. You know what God actually means by this? By They shall be a sign on your hands. It means this, that you should be able to see Jesus Christ. You should be able to see the love of God in the way that we work with our hands. Are you a cheater? Are you a corner cutter? Or do you stand with integrity and honor before God? 
In other words, when you work, does your work look like work done by a Christian or a crook? Right? Listen to this. They shall be as frontals between your eyes. Did you see the little boxes they put on the little thing, the, the straps? They put this big wooden box literally right there. What in the world are they doing? They are quite literally obeying this command. They have in that box a little scroll with these words on them, and they put them right there on their forehead because the Bible says to. Here's what that actually is supposed to mean. It means the way I think and the what I look at and what I give my mind and my heart to should be the things of God as opposed to the things of this world. Not put a box on your head. They shall be a sign written on your doorpost. Did you see in every single door there's this little thing and they have a little scroll in there with these words in there. Here's what that means. Your home should look like a Christian home. It should function like a Christian home. Listen, here's the point of all this. The way we make disciples of our children is to make your home God's place. Where the things of God are infused into every single facet of life. Mom and dad, that's our responsibility. So, what are the commands? Think of God properly. My friends, this means that the word of God has to be taken seriously by us. We have to love it. Love God completely. And number three, make him known to your children. Father, we love you. We are grateful that we get to be your children. And we're grateful for the time that we've had together today. I pray that, Lord, you bless this precious church. and Help, Lord, each man and woman, to walk with you and to love you and to seek you. And God, help us to be the kinds of people that will shape our children and point our children towards Christ because we know very clearly that this world is giving everything it can to pointing them away from Christ. So help us, Lord Jesus, to be diligent, to be compassionate, to be loving, and to, Lord, to do what you've called us to do. We give ourselves to you, and we pray that you bless us in Jesus' name. Amen. As we close, if there's a time, if there's something on your heart that you need to respond to, I'm going to ask during as we sing, you come forward and come pray with your pastor and he can guide you and instruct you on what's next, next steps for you. But let's stand together and you respond as the